Well, good morning to all of you. I also want to say good morning uh, to those joining us in the 11 a.m. hall worship gathering. So great to be with you uh, this morning as well. My name is Cameron Beatty. I am uh, the pastor of Peak Street Church. And if you are new or new-ish, uh, Highland Park Prez actually exists uh, as a family of churches, as we call it, or maybe you've often heard it. Uh, and so whether it's here in the Park Cities or in Old East Dallas, uh, in Lake Highlands or um, Oak Cliff to infinity and beyond, wherever it might be. Uh, we exist um, united around this common vision um, to make Jesus known, to help people find and follow Jesus all throughout our city and into the world. And so I know that many ask, uh, and, and many of you have been just so supportive of this initiative to, to start new congregations, but there is this frequent question, given the, the nature of Dallas being this highly saturated church culture, is there really this need to plant new churches and to start new congregations? And the answer is yes, because this city, as many of you know, and many of you can attest to, this city um, just is home to these wonderfully unique neighborhoods. And so... Uh, for us to be able to go out and to go out from this place um, and to be able to set up these kingdom outposts, again, in places like East Dallas and like Highlands and Oak Cliff and all of these others, it's a way for us to be amongst a people and help them, help many of them to find and follow Jesus. And still to this day, to plant new congregations, to start new ones is one of the best ways to make the gospel known. And so just on behalf of Peak Street Church, I know on behalf of, of so many others, we really want to say thank you to Highland Park Prez, to Brian and Jay, to the elders, uh, to the staff who have just been such champions and, and just these uber helps along the way. We are so grateful. We are so grateful for you and grateful for what God is doing in your midst. And so this morning, um, what I want to do is for us to take up, uh, and maybe you've heard this alluded to, I want to us to take up this theme of family. Now, we've just talked about this idea of a family of churches, but we're going to take on this theme of what it means to be the family of God. Now, you might have a question, and this is probably a good one. Are we referring to like the family in my home or the family in this church? And the answer is yes. Like, yes. So we're going to be looking at Proverbs 22, 6. And as you turn there, and hopefully if you have a Bible in front of you, we'll also have this on the screen. But if you have Proverbs 22, 6, um, I want to tell you just about one thing that's kind of uniquely uh, taking shape at Peak Street Church. And many of you have been so great to ask, how's it going? How can we pray for you? And so within this particular season, uh, and we're about five years in, we're pretty close to the center of the city in Old East Dallas. Uh, we are experiencing just a lot of young families that are coming in. And, and as a result, uh, these families are starting to become good friends and not just good friends, but friends who function as family together. And so one of my favorite moments in the life of this congregation was actually a moment that we got to experience together here just a few moments ago. As we bore witness together to these baptisms in the lives of these families and in the lives of these little children. I'm not sure if you were able to see up front, um, but there was sort of this, this moment, sort of this hush that took place as the word of God was being spoken over these little girls. And as Callum wonderfully said, whether they realized it or not, the Spirit is at work in and amongst God's people to encourage our children, children to raise them in the way of Jesus. And it is this high privilege that we have been called to, yes, individually as families, but collectively as the church. And so what I want us to do today, again, is to take on this great theme, that is the family of God, and look at Proverbs chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. 
So here we go. I'm just going to read this verse for us and then pray. And then we'll come back together. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, Lord, we pray that you would be present among your people. Lord, in the prayer of David, we ask that we might behold you, see you for who you are. Lord, we pray that at the same time, by the Spirit, you would also soften our hearts to receive the word that is able to build up and to strengthen so that we might be equipped for every good endeavor. Jesus, we pray that you would come, that you would proclaim the gospel to us and in through your word, which is living and active. So teach us to see it for what it is. Beautiful, wonderful, true, all of these things. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in the Tate Britain Museum, uh, which is actually located in one of the great cities of the world, place where a little tennis tournament is taking place today, uh, there resides a painting by Sir John Everett Malias. 19th century painter, and this painting is called The Boyhood of Raleigh. Now, you might have seen this, but it actually depicts an early scene in the life of Sir Walter Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh was one of the great British explorers, explorers sent by Queen Elizabeth I, and he was the first to establish some of the early British colonies in what is now North Carolina, hence the name Raleigh, North Carolina. But he also set out And he set sail for what was this sort of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, this elusive El Dorado that took shape at the turn of the 19th century. In this painting, what's most interesting about this here is that Malias, the painter, imagines what it would actually take to create such an adventurer as Raleigh, to create such an explorer. What's the architecture behind someone like this? And his answer, it's a good storyteller. So the paintings of this young Raleigh and a friend who are entranced by this wizened sort of old rugged sailor. And the sailor is pointing them to the immensity of the sea. He's telling them stories of what lies behind on the other side. The story on Malias' interpretation gives birth to this longing that will govern and direct all of Raleigh's life. But what I want to suggest today is that it's not just Raleigh's life that is uniquely animated by enchanted horizons. The author and philosopher, modern day James K.A. Smith, writes, to be human, that is to be a human being, is to be on a quest. To live is to be embarked on a kind of unconscious journey toward the destination of your dreams. Now, ancient philosophers, I'm going to sort of maybe just geek out on you a little bit here. Ancient philosophers of habit would call this sort of destination formally our telos. It's our end, our goal in life. But rather than sort of this abstract idea, our telos is really what we desire, what we want, what we crave most. To be human then, Smith says, is to be animated and oriented by some vision of what might be called the good life some picture of what we think counts as this word that we like to use often, flourishing. So I want to ask you this question. I know I've asked a lot of you, I've asked this question in a scent and maybe in other settings, but it's not just that I'm that uncreative, which may be true, but it's a really important question. Like, 
what is your vision of the good life? Where, where do you think true happiness and lasting happiness is found? And how do you get there? But not just for your own selves and not just for our own sakes, but what about for the sake of our children? What is a vision of the good life for your children, for our children? And I know that's a big question, but what are the institutions? What are the activities? What are the extracurriculars? What are the sort of the experiences? What are these things that you are laboring and fighting to provide and sort of direct them towards that will bring about ultimate flourishing? What is that? Now, I asked that question and, you know, maybe you're thinking it's like mid-July, it's Texas it's not today, but it's typically like a thousand degrees right now. And I just don't run that deep or existential. And that's fair, right? Right, that's fair. So maybe you're thinking about, maybe you'd rather be on the golf course. Like maybe you'd rather be at brunch or by the pool. Maybe you'd rather just finally be in Colorado or go back to Colorado. Or, or maybe you'd be like on the beach next to this emerald green sea that is 30A, right? Or whatever it is that your dreamscape of choice. And so if you, if you go to those places, and maybe I just prompted that, but if you go to those places in your mind, what I would suggest is that you're imagining what is a vision of the good life in miniature, in part. Because the good life in so many ways, at its roots, at its bottoms, it includes rest and comfort and delight. And you know, not a heat index of 115 degrees. But again, what is your vision of the good life? Now go back to the boyhood of Raleigh. And I want to imagine that we are sitting at the feet of this wizened old sage named Solomon. If we can get this image back up here, just imagine that you're one of the boys who's sitting there. And Solomon, who's pointing to the immensity of this ocean, is one of the great kings, not just of God's people, but in the ancient world, who is teaching us to sail for the immensity that is the triune God. And Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, in so many ways, is not just giving us these little pithy one-liners or these, this practical guide to living, but he is at the bottoms birthing in us a longing for an even better country, a heavenly one, as the writer of Hebrews says. Solomon is calling us to imagine the biblical vision of shalom, which is God's vision, his own very vision of the good life itself of a world where the lamb is our light, where swords are beaten into plowshares, where abundance is enjoyed by all, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation sing the same song of praise, where justice rolls down like waters, where righteousness is like an everlasting stream. And that vision will captivate us, not just because we know it's what God wants, but through wisdom, through biblical wisdom, it is teaching us by the Spirit what to want. So what I want us to do this morning, just in brief, is to consider three things as we look at this passage together. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. First, we're going to look at the surprise of wisdom in this passage. Then second, we're going to look at the story of wisdom that's located in this passage. And then finally, the sacrifice of wisdom. So Proverbs 22, verse 6, let's look at the surprise of wisdom. Again, let's look back at that verse, and I want to read this out of a translation that we use often here that's in that pew Bible in front of you, or maybe that was on the screen. 
comes from the English Standard Version. Now, this is an attempt to, to be as literal sort of word for word as you can. And it goes like this. Train up a child in the way he or she should go. And it, even when he or she is old, they will not depart from it. Now, everything's pretty straightforward. Like, it's straightforward enough. It's a tough command, but it's, it's straightforward, right? In the words of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, maybe this is another translation. Teach your children well. Feed them on your own dreams and see which one they choose. All right, we've got it, right? Like, let's just, let's go watch Wimbledon if it's still going. But there's all kinds of questions that come up as you look at this verse and as you sit with it and you do with the Proverbs that was what was meant to do. That is to sit with it and chew upon it and meditate. So questions start to arise like, what is the way that our children should go? And it's not just a question of interpretation. It's also a question of experience. There are so many of us in this room, and this is such a gift to get to be a part of your life and to have been a part of the life of this congregation for so long. It's just to know that there are moms and dads, grandmothers and grandfathers, there's aunts and uncles, there are spiritual mentors, spiritual moms and dads, confirmation mentors, student leaders, Sunday school teachers who have invested deeply, who have trained up the children of this church. And yet if we're honest, they're older and they have departed. So what do you do with this? And there's this sort of quiet heartache that while this is a beautiful call in and of itself, it's rightly extended at baptism to the life of the congregation. It's also heartbreaking in many of our own experiences. So what do we do with this? Well, first it's key to remember, and I think we've said something like this in this series, but it's key just to reiterate that the Proverbs are not promises. They speak to life in general for wise living, the with God life, but it does not count for many of the exceptions. In fact, as the canonization of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament that we call was taking place, one of the most hotly debated books was the book of Proverbs to be included in our Old Testament Bible. And the reason was because of this very reality that it actually didn't live up to experience for many people. And if you read on later in the books of Solomon, you read of men like Job who are faithful, who are righteous, and they suffer profoundly. So it's key to remember this. But there's a surprise here. Let's look at it a little bit closer. Again, let's look at another translation, maybe here now in the NIV. This is another translation, another really good one. Start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Again, it's another great translation. Like in many ways, this is an encouragement to come behind and to invest in these children that we have been entrusted with. But one of the great challenges, one of the great problems with even these two translations and many of our English translations is that it includes this word should, which actually doesn't appear in the initial Hebrew translation. So it might read something like this. And we can have pretty good confidence that it does read something like this. Train up or dedicate, as it's often used throughout the Old Testament, train up a child in his or her way. That is in the child's way. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. And you hear that and you go, okay, well, maybe this allows for a little bit of freedom. 
like a little bit of agency, a little bit of creativity for children to be these sort of God-given um, image bearers that he's created them to be with a myriad of gifts and personalities, right? And to a degree, that's like, that's accurate and that's beautiful. But if you look a little bit closer, one of the things that you'll notice is all throughout the Proverbs and even within the Psalms and the Old Testament literature is that whenever it refers to someone's way, apart from the way of the righteous, it's usually not good. And in fact, one of the things that, that Solomon, the writer, is going to go on to say just a few verses later in chapter 22, verse 15, is that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Like, can I get an amen with just like a little bit of experience, right? So as a dad of a three-year-old and a one-year-old, I mean, that's not like a knock on them at all, but like there are times when sort of folly shows itself. And thank goodness it's camouflaged in cuteness, right? But this is immense, like this is profound because you start to read it. And if you read it in this way, it turns more so into warning rather than so much instruction. So let me read it again. Train up a child in his or her way. And even when they are old, they will not depart from it. You hear that? Gordon Hugenberger is an Old Testament professor. He says, accordingly, one of my Old Testament professors says, accordingly, Proverbs 22.6 is not so much a promise as it is a solemn warning. Parents, if you train up your child according to his way or her way, in other words, if you quit the hard work of loving discipline and just give in and let your child have their own way, you will reinforce these sinful proclivities like this folly that Solomon speaks to, to such a degree that apart from supernatural intervention, even when they are old, they will not depart from it. The book of Proverbs elsewhere places similar urgency on the discipline of children. And just know that this is good, like discipline in the good sense of the word. Don't think license for physical abuse, which is a tragic reality in our day, or even the old school. And I would hear this a lot from my grandparents. Discipline like, go pick out your own switch, right? And I'm not here to enter into the spanking debates or anything like that. I'm just saying that the Bible speaks so highly of discipline and says this is the way that we begin to build into and invest in our children. And so Proverbs says that discipline of children and the danger of being left alone is an absolute reality. Therefore, Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your son, your daughter, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his or her death. Again, I just read this one, Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from them. The rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. So these are hard words, but it's truth spoken in love. That is to say, in the, the modern moment that we find ourselves in, which is follow your heart, Follow your dreams, you do you, and whatever it may be. What Solomon is saying to us is that actually leads to death and not to life. And so now you may hear this and you say, like, say, come on, like, seriously, seriously. But remember that Solomon is not writing these Proverbs in sort of this ivory tower, although he could. But he's writing as king over an ancient people with a rebellious history. 
Similarly, the earliest hearers of these Proverbs would have heard every one of these Proverbs, not as nice ideas that may or may not be as applicable as a fortune cookie, but rather they were a people with a story that, was, that were now experiencing the tragedy of exile. That is going their own way and going the way of the nations. And so what you see here is the story of wisdom even embedded in this, in this proverb. Just to give you kind of a quick illustration of this to show that there's so much going on here. Um, the other day, I uh, had to go retrieve a birth certificate for um, my little 14-month-old. And uh, I had to go downtown, go down into the West End and onto, onto Elm Street and into the records building. So I was sort of bracing myself. But I remember going down there. I hadn't been down there in a little while. And I remember you see, like you're really close to Dealey Plaza. And you're really close to the book depository. And you're really close to this area where tourists and conspiracy theorists and all kinds of people are gathering. And immediately you feel this sort of harrowing and sometimes haunting reality of this historic day when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And so the sights and the sounds and the imagery, like it provokes something. And so in the same way, when the people of God hear that the children of God are actually able to turn and go their own way or depart from the way of righteousness, what they hear is not just sort of some vague idea like, oh, we should just like make sure that they're on the right path. No, but they hear the story of rebellion. They hear the story of wisdom forsaken. And I want to just give you a piece of this because as a church right now, Peachtree Church, one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to do this sort of read the Bible in a year, not just to be ambitious, but we're, we're trying to see the great story of redemption. That is our story. That is the story of these children. And so we've been reading and we've been walking through these great stories. And you see the storyline in places like Genesis 1, where God creates Adam and Eve to be rulers and, and kings and queens of creation. And he gives them all things and he entrusts dominion to them. But you know the story, right? That all the wisdom is there in the beginning, lady wisdom. And that was even spoken of in our call to worship. You see it more in Proverbs 8, that metaphorically lady wisdom was with them in the beginning, was with God at creation. That in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they take of this fruit and of this tree that was desired to make one wise, to give understanding. And when they ate it, the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and shame and destruction and rebellion entered into and fractured this world. And so God in his kindness, he exiles them out of the garden, but he clothes them in his righteousness. And you think, well, surely the people of God will come back. They will return to the Lord. But the story of the people of Israel, whether you look at this in Exodus chapter 32, as the people of God are down in Egypt, and they turn aside quickly to idols or whether they, they are among the kings of the northern kingdom and they do not go the way of David, but rather, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 15, they turn aside from the way of the Lord. They forsake his commands that the story of God's people is one of constant turning away from him. And it comes in the form of being distracted and a lot of sophisticated ways of going the other ways of the nations. And so what we need is this true and faithful one, this human David, Solomon on their best day, this king, this Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3.15, who will not turn away from the Lord, 
who will walk faithfully in all the commands of the Lord. And he will lead the people in that faithfulness. And what you have in Jesus Christ when he comes onto the scene is one who not only does that, but announces this invitation to a people who are constantly turning back, turning back, turning back. And you know what that invitation is? Repent. Which means, come home. Like you've, you've turned away from the Lord, but now turn back to him. Like it's, it's this invitation command that has all of this beauty and all of this conviction without condemnation. And it turns the people of God back toward him. And so now we see in and through Jesus Christ, one who faithfully walks the way of the cross, who trusts his father completely, does not turn to the right or to the left. And on the third day, was raised again after he had suffered. And as he was vindicated, he was now reconciled and reconciling the people of God back to God, who is their true home, Peter says. So just a brief word of application when you think about the sacrifice of wisdom. When Solomon issues this warning, Jesus extends this invitation that for those who for a long time or for the first time today who have turned away from God, who have made little of him, who have been enthralled by all the things that this city and Instagram and your own expectations of your family have to offer and you've gone headlong into that, Jesus is saying, come back. Jesus is saying, come after me. Because what we have in Jesus Christ is not just another teacher. He's not a rabbi. He's not a prophet. But he actually is wisdom embodied, the apostle Paul says. The wisdom in God, not in a pathway, but now in a person. And so here's what I want to say just by way of application as we close. And there are so many ways that this needs to be applied and could be applied across this congregation. But may the Spirit give us grace to do so. This warning invitation is not calling you and your family to a life of impossibility before God. But it is calling us to renewed intentionality with God. And that takes place one step at a time. In fact, it was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who said that God has willed that the whole of the Christian life, not just beginning at our yes to Jesus, but the whole of our Christian life is one of repentance, is one of turning back again and again and again. So how do we teach our children to walk the way of faith? Repentance and faith, turning back and trusting Jesus. And that is life. It's turning back and trusting, trusting and turning back again and again and again until the day when Jesus returns, the vindicated, risen one, so I want to leave you with this question. What if true wisdom, like the good life for you and for your family, doesn't necessarily reside in your child getting into the right institution? And I won't name whatever one that is on your list. It's not actually about what extracurriculars they're in, although those are important, whatever social networks you're really eager for them to be in. But what if it's actually about this with God life? And it's not so much about us kind of tacking Jesus onto our lives but us being invited into his. It's going to take sacrifice. You may have to create some space and forego some things at nights, on weekends, whatever it may be. 
But what's the next step? Maybe you feel conviction. Don't feel guilt. Don't feel shame. But in and through Jesus Christ, you have one who is eager to restore and bring us back to him. So Father, we pray now that you would teach us as a people to come back to you and to encourage one another across these great ministries of the church and in the life of this congregation to go about the way of formation, to trust you and to turn back to you again and again. So Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you have first loved us. Pray that our stories would be consumed in yours until the day when you come, return to make all things new. Amen.